Well, good morning, Sailorville. In my notes, I have here at the very beginning, it says pray. Uh, and so instead of praying, I think we'll sing. A little bit along the lines of what we just sang in a more contemporary way. Sing with me. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. You know the chorus. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Ephesians chapter 6. I love those songs more than I love this one. You get up every morning from the alarm clock's warning. Take the 1815 into the city. There's a whistle up above and people pushing, people shoving, and the girls who try to look pretty. And if your train's on time, you can get to, yeah, you know this song. And start your slaving job to get your pay. If you've ever been annoyed, look at me. I'm self-employed. I love to work at nothing all day. As a Christian, I learned that work is a gift. It's a gift from God. And it's a daily opportunity to show my personal love for Jesus Christ to a watching world. Work as an act of worship, hence the title of the message. Not for the praise of men, but for the smile of God. Because too many of us out here and watching online, you look at work as that start your slave and job to get your pay, which is as unchristian as you can get. After all, we've already learned in our series that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are his poema, his work of art, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them, right? Paul told Titus that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be zealous for good works. And, and I, just, I just learned a, a, a term, and when I say just learned, I mean like this morning. The term quiet quitters. Anybody ever heard of a quiet quitter? Raise your hand if you heard that term. A few of you have, because I don't know if it just kind of came out of, COVID, but it's been around forever. But a quiet quitter is a person with a job who does the absolute bare bones minimum just to get it done, to get the slaving paycheck. In the words of James, my brethren, these things ought not to be so to those who name the name of Jesus. 
This is a passage of scripture, verses five through nine, which is easily overlooked because it's sandwiched between husbands and wives, children to their parents, and later on as we get into 2023, how we fight with the devil doing spiritual warfare. That'll be a series for you. And in between this one, it's kind of like, but it's more than that. There's some real application here, and I want you to take it to heart. Beginning in verse five, and every time we come across the word bondservants as translated in the ESV, we're gonna translate it as it's rightly should be translated, slave. The word is doulos, it means slave. That's all it means is slave. And so that's the way I'm going to, and we're gonna put it up there on the, on the screen as well. Slaves, be, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will or good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him or with him. Just the very word slave conjures up all kinds of horrific images in many of our minds and understandably so if you're an American. And while all forms of slavery are an affront to humankind, slavery in the first century was not what you might imagine here in the early America, especially to the African-American. In Paul's day, half the Roman Empire were slaves. Half of them were slaves. 60 million people estimated were slaves. And while some were indeed treated uh, terribly, most had normal jobs in society. They, had, they, were, they were custodians and they were salesmen. They were lawyers and doctors. In fact, you would not recognize a slave from a free man if you bumped into him in the city of Rome or anywhere around. Why do I point this out? Because the Apostle Paul has been wrongly accused of uh, or criticized uh, for, for wrongly criticized for not condemning slavery. And while it's true he didn't condemn slavery, neither did he condone it. It was a part of the whole system, a part of the whole socioeconomic system of Rome. The, the fact is that Paul was more concerned about how God's people demonstrated the Christ-like life, regardless of social status. That was true then, that's true now. Christianity would eventually turn all of that on its head. Uh, the culture today owes uh, our freedom, our political freedom to Christianity because it was Christianity that introduced the imago Deo, that man, men and women, boys and girls, every ethnicity is created, was created in the image of God. That's the imago Deo. And it's, it was on that theological basis that men like William Wilberforce and others were able to eradicate the slave trade and eventually slavery in the free world. Now, for the sake of analogy and for application, 
I'm using the word slave or bondservants as it's translated here with, with workers. Just in this, we're, we're just applying it to us as workers. That should be all of us. And by the way, we're all slaves. We, we really are. And, and if you're a follower of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, what don't you know? You, uh, your body is the temple of God. You have been bought with a price. You've been purchased. Even the very word redeemed means to be purchased. You have been purchased through the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. You are a slave of God. In fact, Paul and Peter and even Jesus' stepbrother Jude all refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. Did you know that? And if you're an unbeliever, which of course some of you are, you're not true Christians yet, maybe you will be by the end of today, that'd be wonderful. You're also a slave. Jesus said in John 8, 34, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. And I love, I think this, here's a good, uh, sort of a compressed version of, of Christians and non-Christians both being slaves. Paul's words uh, to the Romans in chapter six, here's what he says. He says, but thanks be to God that you who once what were what? Slaves of sin, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So either way, you're a slave. The only question is, who's your master? That's the only question here. And I wanna note that as Paul moves from the home to working in society, he's using terms of behavior, how we act, how we interact, what our attitudes portray, he, he uses the same terminology as he did in the home. This is totally consistent. The, the call, the criteria, and the consolation of work are purposely familiar, as we'll see. We're talking about worship as you work, okay? And first of all, notice it's a familiar call. Look at verse five. Slaves, obey your earthly master. That, that's a familiar call. Remember what we saw earlier? Wives, submit to your husbands, right? Obey your husbands. Chapter six, verse one, children, obey your parents, right? And now, slaves, obey your masters. Very familiar terminology here. The word obey is a, is a word which has a prefix. The, the word to hear is the word akuo, and then there's a prefix, which it's apakuo. It means literally to listen underneath. And it literally pictures somebody looking up at an authority and listening with an attentive ear, ready to obey. Uh, our tech manager, Doug uh, Porter, caught an illustration of this at my book launch here just the other day. We haven't decided what was going on in this picture, but believe me, I was listening. <laughs> so he says, bond servants obey. Come under that authority. Come under. Listen under. And, uh, and then he says, do so with fear and trembling with the, and with a sincere heart. And this is specifically dealing with our attitudes. This is talking about an attitude of respect. We're talking about on the job, be it in the home or outside the home. Worship as you work with an attitude of respect. I have the joy, as many of you know, working with uh, a number of men who have come to Christ over the last couple of years through our ministry uh, who are soldiers, either, either 
currently serving our country or previously serving our country. And one of the things I've noticed is there's this built-in or drilled-in, no pun intended, uh, respect for authority. I almost marvel sometimes at it. And I've often caught myself wondering, if only the Lord's army <laughs> would, uh, would take a page from these soldiers and show that kind of respect with their attitudes. There are some that do. There's a guy in our church, I, he'll go unnamed, but I've been praying with him for over 20 years. And uh, he, he, I marvel as, I, I remember 20 years ago, he was pleading for the salvation of his employer, the man he worked for. He, he, he has come to love that man. He pleads for his salvation. That was 20 years ago. I just prayed with him the other day. And he's still praying with the same sincerity, the same earnestness, the same desire for his employer to come to know Jesus. I gotta help. I gotta believe God's gonna save that guy. That's, that's the kind of attitude that we're talking here, the kind of respect we're talking here. And you notice the term sincere, a sincere heart. There's a beautiful Latin, the, our English word sincere, when we talk about somebody who's sincere, we're talking about somebody who's genuine, right? Our, the, there's a, it, actually, the, the, uh, the Latin word, or rather our English word, sincere, comes from a Latin word, sincere, sounds just like sincere, sincere. It literally means without wax, and it came from those first century times when pottery, every, there's pottery wherever you look, there's pottery, and those who were making pots would make a pot, and then, but sometimes when they put it in the kiln and the baking process would call it, cause it to crack. If you were an unscrupulous uh, individual doing pottery, you would just seal that crack with wax. It would still hold water, wine, whatever you put in it. Uh, but if you created a pot without any cracks, you would often stamp it with sincere in Latin, meaning no wax. This is genuine. There's actually a corresponding Greek word which means sun-tested. And the idea was if you were going through a, the market, you picked up a pot you really liked and you'd notice it was marked down a little bit. You put it up, you'd look through the top hole and you'd look at the bottom to see if it had any cracks because if it had wax, the sun would shine through. So that's the idea. The idea is, is authentic, real, that's, that's, what, that's what Paul means when he talks about you and I at work having a sincere kind of heart. The actual Greek word in the text here conveys the idea of genuineness and even generosity. You, you can tell when somebody's disingenuous, can't you? Disingenuous acts of service are usually pretty easily detected. I mean, have you ever done the right thing for the wrong reason? Can I get a hand raised here? You, you bet you have. So have I. This word is saying, don't do that. As a follower of Jesus, this word, sincere, is saying, don't do that. Make sure your act, your work, is an act of worship, and as such, it's authentic. Verse seven says, a rendering service with a, with a good, rendering service with a good will. It's a very clunky translation. I hate it in the ESV. I love the CSB here, serve with a good attitude. That's the idea here. Serve with a good attitude. And by the way, if you're a parent, that it starts in the home because your, your kids, they, they can see the attitudes that you cop. Am, am I right? I should be asking the kids, am I right? 
They see it. They're watching you. They pick up on the attitude. They copy the attitude. Kind of like the little boy who said, Mommy, why do all the idiots only come out when Daddy's driving? (laughs) Just saying. But don't underestimate the power of an attitude. Do not underestimate the power of an attitude to save people. Because remember, Jesus is, it was Jesus who said, let your light so shine before men. What does that even mean? Well, he explains it. That they may see your good what? Your works and thus glorify my Father who's in heaven. Do not underestimate the power of your attitude. It was the power of a, of a beautiful attitude that saved my soul. Nick True was the man I is the man that I worked with at John Deere, who we had to work in the foundry. I'd been late, I've been getting chopped down to the place where I was almost out the door, but I was in the foundry with Nick and all the soot. We had to work together. And Nick did tell me about Jesus. But what he also did was he was the first one to volunteer to scrape the racks. We had to scrape soot off the racks. We had to sandblast tar tanks. Have you ever sandblasted a tar tank? I don't recommend it. And I had an attitude to go along with it. And not the kind that would please anybody, much less God. But Nick would go, hey man, don't worry, I'll show you how it can be done, Pat. And he'd he'd always take the lead. That beautiful attitude, redeemed, that redeemed man, redeemed attitude was the very attraction that brought me to Cause me to say, this is real. This is real. I want this. So don't underestimate the power of your attitude when it comes to your work. How is your attitude? Because I'm looking at some sourpusses out here. And some of us just need to wipe that sourpuss off. Are we not the chin-up people in this world? Are we not the ones who have been given a reason to live regardless of circumstances? So, If we're going to worship as we work, we do so with the familiar call, which is to obey with all that it implies. Secondly, with the familiar criteria, which is as unto the Lord. And you see it repeatedly here in one way, shape, or form. And and, end of verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as slaves of Christ. Verse 7, rendering service with a good attitude as to the Lord. And again, it's a familiar, it's familiar because if you go back to chapter five, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's a consistency here, right? So in the 1600s, there was a monk. Uh, he became famous in history because he wrote a series of 16 letter, letters, correspondence that were put together and put together in a book, Practicing the Presence of the Lord. His name was Brother Lawrence. He, was, he worked in the kitchen. He did all of the tedious task of cleaning and cooking and stuff nobody else wanted to do. But Brother Lawrence determined very early on that everything he did, everything he did, even if it meant picking up a piece of straw, he would do it for the love of God. And he wrote this. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan for love of him who has given me grace to work. 
Now, Paul does throw in a twist here because we're talking now of the, a familiar criteria, doing it as unto the Lord. He throws in a twist. Notice he says, not with eye service as people pleasers. Any people pleasers in the house? I appreciate the, the humble admissions. To, to understand the seriousness of being a people pleaser, if you're a people pleaser by nature, you are one click away from pleasing God. You don't want to stay there. You don't want to stay there. Over the quarter of a century, we've had the joy of bringing on staff, sending them out, planting churches, being missionaries. Our very first church planner served under me as our administrative pastor, Dave Heisterkamp, and right underneath him was our college pastor, Lucas Bear, who's now a missionary in Brazil. And so we, used, we, had, we had a Christmas drama one, one year, and Lucas was asked to play the part of Jesus. Well, he had a total attitude about that. He did not want to play the role of Jesus. And we were in the office talking, why do you, they ask you to do it, just do it, Lucas. He goes, I don't want to do it. I mean, I'm a pastor. What are people going to think? I'm up there, you know, acting like Jesus. And Dave Heisterkamp in front of everybody goes, you're a man pleaser, Lucas. That's what you are. Just do it. And everybody's like, And Lucas would later testify, that really hurt being called a man pleaser. But he also said it helped him because it revealed his hidden motive, what was driving him, just like the very thing that's driving you, self-praise, the praise of men rather than the smile of God. And if that's you, you're one click, one click apart from God. Now, he got his heart right with God and repented, and he played the role, and he played it well, I might add. And he even got a perk because I lined everybody. I had everybody line up. I, I, uh, I wasn't in the play because I wasn't going to do that. I was a pastor. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but I, I lined all the people up out there that were actors, and Lucas was one of them. And they're going by, and a little boy stops at Lucas and goes, I asked you into my heart tonight. How cool is that? <laughs> talk, and talk about a perk. Oh, my. My, my. I understand copping these attitudes and doing things not as unto the Lord. I used to work for UPS when I was, going to, when I was in Bible college. And uh, I was a sorter. If you're a sorter, you have, to, uh, you have to know all the zip states. You got a whole a myriad of zip states and cities. You got to know where all these boxes go, all the chutes they go to. You're under the fan. It's, it's, you, you, get, you get paid the most. It's the great, it, was, it was the best labor job to have. And I finally made the cut, and I was on there, and getting better, actually getting pretty good at my job, I thought. And one night, the guy feeding me boxes was the Superman of unloading. And his one desire was to bury the sorter. And he accomplished the task. I did something I hadn't done in weeks. I stopped the belt. I told him to stop. Everybody noticed what was going on. I had boxes all around me, and I'm picking them up and putting them in the chute. And I could see my foreman coming right at me. He comes right at me, and he just gives me a royal dress down in front of everybody. And so, being a Christian, I, you know, I, I acted in a very Christ-like way. I said to him, you know, you really need to work on your managerial skills. <laughs> that's, that's what I said to him. And I said, I have been working my tail off for you for the last couple of weeks, and I've not, I haven't had to stop the belt once, and I do it one time, and this is what I get? And I can see, even as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, oh, this is, 
not going well. He looked right at me. He said, Nemers, as far as you're concerned, no news is good news. He turned around on his heels and he walked back. And I'm sitting there like this. Because he was right. I didn't take that job to get praised by him. I took that job to do the job and to do it well. And I wasn't doing it well in the moment. And rightly, I got called out for it. So in that moment, I was looking for the praise of men. The Apostle Paul really summarized this, this whole attitude that needs to change when it comes to our work. When he wrote to the Galatians and he said these words, he said in Galatians 1, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Good question. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, watch this, one click away, I would not be a servant of Christ. Don't lose that scripture. Because if we're in this for the praise of men, we're one click away from being servants of Jesus Christ. When the great missionary Jim Elliott, who was, would be speared to death by Elka Indians in 1956, was 28 years old when he died. When he was in his earlier 20s going to Wheaton College, he wrote to his parents and he said, he said, my grades slipped a little bit this last semester, but it doesn't matter to me, he said, because I'm not seeking the praise of men. I'm seeking an AUG degree, approved unto God. And he wasn't trying to be smug or cool. He really meant it. His desire was to be approved unto God. And why is it important that we have this kind of an attitude? Again, Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy in the last chapter of 1 Timothy, here's what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor. Why? So that, purpose statement, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. There it is. There is the reason we do it. Paul said to the, in Romans 2, verse 24, he said to the, He said to the Jews, the name of God is being blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Have you ever read that? In Psalm 135 and verse 13, the the psalmist says, your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your praise, your fame rather, throughout all generations, the name and fame of God. Believe it. The name and the fame of God are on the line. And the way we conduct our affairs and the attitudes in which we conduct them in this world. How's yours doing? Finally, we worship as we work with the familiar call to obey and all that that entails with the familiar criteria, which is as unto the Lord, consistent throughout Scripture, And thirdly, with a familiar consolation, reward from your true master. Look at verse eight. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Do you believe that? You say, well, yeah, the Bible says so. Yeah, but do you really believe that? Some of you, truth to tell, are all in it for the praise of men, the proverbial Pat on the back. You love that pat on the back. I know that feeling. I know that desire. I'm guilty. It's charged. But when we go after and do anything for God, anything, 
with the idea of being praised by others, Jesus has a word for us. It's a good word. He says, you have your reward. There it is. Forget the one in heaven. It's all here. I personally am overwhelmed sometimes, and I've been brought to tears by men and women who serve Jesus behind the scenes for no other reason but for the smile of God and for a reward forthcoming and not here on earth. I thank the Lord for people who give. The building project we're in blesses my heart, whether it's the widow with two mites, but I'm telling you, we have some significant givers who don't want to be known, don't want their names known, because they're totally in it for the glory of God and the smile of God. And it humbles me. They'll never, they'll never, their names are never going to be marqueed. I'm reminded of a book that came out not long ago by John Reinhardt. It's titled Gospel Patrons. It's a book that illustrates how many of the greatest stories many of us have heard and read about would never have happened were it not for somebody behind the scenes underwriting the endeavors that were going on. Let me give you an example, a couple of them actually. William Tyndale, you've heard of him, right? He is the, he's the one who gave us our English Bible. William Tyndale was a, a believing priest before the Reformation, who saw all the, the, the Roman priesthood was so corrupt, he's, and they, the, the word of God was so non-existent, he made a promise to himself that the boy who drives the plow will know more than the preacher in the pulpit. And he would do it by translating the Bible from Latin, which nobody knew, into English, which everybody was already starting to speak. And he did it. But he didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a self-made man. He wasn't independently wealthy. He couldn't do this. He couldn't do all that work that brought about the manuscript, that brought about the Reformation itself. Except for a guy by the name of Humphrey Monmouth. You know who Humphrey was, right? Of course you don't. He was a wealthy English merchant who loved and was a personal friend of William Tyndale. And he undergirded all of what Tyndale was doing with those finances, so that the word of God could be translated in a language that almost everybody in this room has been saved reading, the English language. William Tyndale was put on trial, strangled, and burned at the stake for what he did. And Humphrey Monmouth didn't even know it happened until he read it in the paper weeks later. And when he read it, he started to cry because his friend died such a horrific death. But he knew where Wendell, where uh, Whitfield went. I'm sorry, Tyndale went. And he, with tears coursing down his streaks, he looked up and he said, William, we did it. We did it. Look what God has done. It's people like that that work and worship in their work for the glory of God and the reward that's forthcoming. George Whitfield was the greatest preacher probably since the Apostle Paul. He could preach to 40, 50, some say up to 60,000 people without 
amplification like we use here. The leading actor in England said, I, I would give anything if I could just say, oh, the way George Whitfield says, oh. He traveled up and down the eastern seaboard and thousands and thousands of people came to know Jesus. But he wasn't independently wealthy. There was a woman. There was a rich woman by the name of Lady Huntington who underwrote his travels. If that hadn't happened, we might not have had a great awakening, which virtually changed this country and other areas of the world. John Newton there's a familiar name, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton had another John, John Thornton, who underwrote a thousand of his hymn books that contained Amazing Grace. We wouldn't be singing it, much less know it, if it wasn't for the efforts of John Thornton. These are all people, men and women, who served Jesus Christ, not for the praise of men, but for the smile of God and for the reward forthcoming. Just the other day, a friend in our church who works with men, disciples men as I do, he told another guy, he said, most of God's good work happens behind the scenes. And I agree with him. Most of God's good work happens behind the scenes. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who would come to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that? No, that wasn't just a stopgap. I'm asking you, do you believe that? Really? Because I think our struggle to believe lies in the fact that our patience often wears out long before God's does. God is patient with us, and aren't you glad? He bears long with us, the Bible tells us. And for those of you who have been serving the Lord, and sometimes you wonder where the, where the, where the perk is, <laughs> you'd like a little kickback, a little help on this side, God. Remember what Jesus said, your father sees a secret. He'll reward you. I think we have the verse to put up. And speaking of the patience of God, God is not willing that any of you should perish. He's patient, Second Peter tells us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all, all, all should come to repentance. And when repentance occurs, Everything changes. Believing that Jesus died for you, rose again for you. Repent of your sin. You turn to Jesus, and everything changes. Everything changes. And if it doesn't change, I mean, I mean, when I say everything changes in your heart, all life's circumstances don't necessarily change, but you have a reward waiting for you, amen? It's guaranteed. If you've never trusted Jesus, let's start there. And then you become his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them and to the glory of God. Amen?
Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Our Father, we're grateful for work, for the glory of work, for the blessing of work, for the grace of work, and Lord, for the witness of work and how our attitudes, our attitudes and the way we convey ourselves with our countenances and our faces and with our, with our diligence can make a difference in people's lives. And forgive us, Lord, if it hasn't. You, dear Jesus, who were the light of the world, told us that we are the light of the world. (laughs) Help us to do so. That men and women, boys and girls, may see our good works and glorify you, Father God. We ask in Jesus' name.